John chapter 7, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. You've heard the words polarizing or divisive, controversial. Sometimes you hear these words uh, used to describe public figures. It might be presidents or uh, prime ministers, politicians. Uh, those words were used to describe Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, uh, Winston Churchill, for example. Sometimes these words are used to describe military leaders like General George Patton or William Tecumseh Sherman, polarizing, controversial, divisive. Sometimes it's used to describe religious leaders or pop culture icons. You know, one man's hero is another man's zero. You either love him or you hate him. So we've, we've heard these words a lot. And those words were applied to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I mean, those, those things have been true throughout history. It's true today. And it was true of Jesus Christ in his day. And it's true of Jesus Christ even today. He is polarizing. He is divisive. He is controversial. And that's really the theme of what we're going to see here in John chapter 7 this morning. In John chapter 6, we had the great defection. and We saw that the Galilean crowds turned and walked away. And now in chapter 7, six months later, we're going to see Jesus come back into Jerusalem and controversy and division and confusion is going to surround Jesus. As we work our way through John, we have this, uh, this theme of disbelief is increasing. Uh, in chapter 6, the Galilean crowds walked away, but not only the crowds, but many of his disciples withdrew from him and were no longer walking with him. We got a preview at the end of chapter 6 that one of his 12 disciples will betray him. And then we hear in chapter 7 that not even his brothers were believing in him. So we have this theme of disbelief. We also have this climate of hostility that's just escalating. Things are getting hotter and hotter. In chapter 5, Jesus healed the lame man by the pool and, uh, and the Jewish leaders. They're ready to kill Jesus because he claims to be the son of God, making himself to be equal with God. And we're going to hear that again in chapter 7, and they're just going to be more and more determined. So things are escalating. Things are heating up as we go. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, again here in John 7, he comes into a town that is rife with controversy and division and confusion, and it's all about Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the theme of our passage this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we're going we're to take this whole chapter today, the whole chapter 7, so we're going to cover a lot of ground real fast. So uh, listen fast and buckle up. <laughs> and if you have your listening guide on the back of your bulletin, let's start first of all with a matter of time. There's a lot of timing going on here. First of all, we have the time of the feast. In verse 2, John tells us, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So it is the time of the 
Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes it's called. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three annual pilgrimage feasts. Uh, every man who lived within, every Jewish man who lived within 15 or 20 miles of Jerusalem was expected to make the pilgrimage. You come to Jerusalem for these three festivals each year. And this is one of those pilgrimage feasts. And people would come to, to Jerusalem, not, not just 10, 15, 20 miles out, but from all over the country. This was a great festival. This is a joyous festival. This is a great time. This is a good time. Uh, people would come from all over. They would come to Jerusalem and build booths, build little tabernacles, just these little shelters with branches and greenery. Think a week-long national camping trip. I mean, that's what this is. So people would go out. They'd build this little tent if you want to call it that, a little shelter out of branches and greenery. It's not waterproof. In fact, it was, you, I mean, here are the building codes. You have to be able to see through the walls, see light through the walls, and see the stars through the roof. So this isn't really a shelter shelter. It's just a little tabernacle. It's a booth. And so people would live in these booths for the week. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would go build one up on your rooftop. And, you're going to, and everybody's, everybody's going to camp out for the week of the Festival of Booths. Now this Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a fall harvest festival. In our calendar, it would be September or October of the year. So it's a harvest festival. It's also a commemoration of the exodus, uh, the wilderness wanderings. I mean, that's where this comes from. So it's a time to remember and commemorate God's provision, God's presence, and God's protection with his people in the wilderness. That's the whole point of this thing. And then it also anticipates the messianic kingdom, looking forward to the kingdom of the Messiah. So all that is going on in, in, in the context of the festival of booths. And this is a happy festival. It is a joyous occasion. It is, it's, it's a good thing. So it's the time of the feast of booths. It's about that time. Now I want you to notice the time of the passage as well, the time of the passage. Here in the Gospel of John, in the, in the, in the context of the, the whole book, in chapter 2, it was Passover. Remember the wedding at Cana, and then after the wedding at Cana, it was Passover. So we have Passover in chapter 2. In chapter 6, we saw last week, it was Passover again. So there's a year between chapter 2 and chapter 6. So we've got a Passover in chapter 2. We've got a, cha a Passover in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7 is the Feast of Booths. So we've just skipped six months. We've gone from spring Passover to the fall festival of booths. And the next Passover is when they'll crucify the Lord Jesus. So these, we're coming into the last six months of his ministry. So that's the timing in the whole gospel. We have Passover in chapter 2, Passover in chapter 6. We have fast-forwarded six months. There's a lot that happens in those six months that John just doesn't even tell us about. You can read about those six months in Mark 7, 8, and 9. And Mark 7, 8, 9, I mean, Mark gives three chapters to those six months. Jesus' encounter with a Syrophoenician woman. He feeds a multitude of 4,000 men plus women and children. We also have Peter's great confession. You know, who do people say, to, say that I am? Who do you say I am? Oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have the transfiguration. So there's a lot that goes on in those six months. John just doesn't, he doesn't even go there. He just skips it. So we move forward six months. In this chapter, there are also three time frames in this chapter. We have before the Feast of Booths, that's what we just read, 
The Feast of Booths was near, so it's before it actually starts. Then down in verse 14, when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. So that's somewhere in the middle of this week-long festival, so in the middle of the festival. And then down in, chapter, in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast. So this is the end of the feast. So we have three different time frames in our chapter, all within this week of, 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 of the festival. Now, his brothers give him some brotherly advice. We just read that. We won't reread it. But his brothers, we just read, his brothers are not believing in him. So they're not followers at this point. They won't be followers until the resurrection. And after Jesus is raised from the dead, they kind of figure it out. Hmm, he's the Messiah. He really is the Messiah. And his family begins to follow him. And James becomes one, the, great, uh, the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And James and Jude, two of his brothers, James and Jude, pen two books of your New Testament, James and Jude. So they will become followers later. But now they're not believers, and they give Jesus some brotherly advice. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and be the Messiah? And now you and I know, John's already told us that the Jews are intending to kill him. Now, maybe his brothers are saying, why don't you just go down there and get yourself killed then? <laughs> uh, but probably not. There's nothing in the text that indicates that his brothers have animosity toward him, that they want him to get himself killed. That's not the idea. More than likely, this is just pragmatic, worldly thinking. Hey, look, if you think you're the Messiah you got to go to Jerusalem and be the Messiah in Jerusalem. You can't run around the Galilean countryside being the Messiah. If you really want to strike it big, if you want to be that guy, you have to go to Jerusalem. You know, it's kind of like, if, hey, if you want to be a country music star, you got to go to Nashville, right? <laughs> you want to be a movie star, you're going to have to move to L.A. If you want to run for national office, you need a national platform. Well, look, if you want to be the Messiah, you're going to have to go to Jerusalem. And what a great time of year. It's the Festival of Booths. Everybody's going to be there. You can, you can get crowds. You can go down and preach some sermons. You can do your thing and get some converts, get some disciples. Maybe you can recoup some of the stuff you lost, chapter 6, you know, when everybody turned and walked away. So they're probably just giving him some practically worldly, pragmatic advice. But it's not just worldly thinking. That's also a satanic temptation. I mean, it's the same thing Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness, why don't you go make a name for yourself? Jesus isn't trying to make a name for himself. He's doing the will of the Father, and he wants to glorify the Father. We hear that here in chapter 7. But here's what I want you to notice is the timing of the passion. In verse 6, Jesus said, My time is not yet here. I'm not going to go to the festival with you. My time is not yet here. We hear it again in verse 8. My time has not yet fully come. We'll hear it again in verse 30. His hour had not yet come. Jesus said it in chapter 2 as well. We'll hear it again in chapter 8. His hour has not yet come. Now in chapter 12, Jesus will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In chapter 13, he knew that his hour had come. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, the hour has come. What I want you to notice is that Jesus is on a schedule. He is in control. God has set the schedule, and Jesus, is he's, he's on schedule. He's on time. He's in control. Don't ever think that things got out of control for Jesus. I mean, he just misread the room. He miscalculated, and things spiraled, got out of hand, got out of control. And next thing you know, he got crucified. No, every step of the way, he knows. He's in, the, he's in the Father's will. He's doing the Father's will, and he's on the Father's timing, and he knows when it's his hour. And so his brothers are saying, hey, you need to come to 
come to Jerusalem with us. And Jesus, no, it's not time for that yet. But now notice in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So he does, he does go to the feast of booths, but he's going to be fashionably late. <laughs> he doesn't come with a family. Typically, families would come in great caravans, or whole communities would travel in these great caravans. And if he had come in with that kind of a crowd and that kind of fanfare, it could have turned into a triumphal entry scenario. Not time for that. That's six months away. So he comes in, kind of low-key, fashionably late, but then he's going to go and he's going to make a public appearance. We'll see in just a moment. But I want you to notice the time of the passion. So there's that matter of time. Now let's keep going. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's keep reading. And when Jesus comes, oh, he's the talk of the town. Look at verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. See, you thought political correctness was new. <laughs> it's that self-censorship, political correctness. It's around even then. But when it was now the midst of the feast, in the middle of the week, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Remember, he, remember seeing is believing, and God says, uh-uh, believing is seeing. If you want to see, you have to believe first. We saw last Sunday, believing is knowing. You, you, don't, uh, you don't believe after you know it and understand it. No, you'll know and understand after you believe. Same principle. When you believe, when you're ready to obey, then you'll know. Then you'll know of his teaching, whether it's from God. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So you guys, you're all tore up about the law while you're trying to kill me. So much for the law. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. He's referring back to healing the lame man by the pool. Remember that in chapter 5. That was, that was six months earlier. So uh, the previous Passover. He said, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given, you, had, has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Remember the Jewish leaders? They were all tore up because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Not because he healed a man. They, I mean, just, they just missed that point. But the fact that he did it on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was pointing out their inconsistency, their hypocrisy. You're all tore up about the law while you're obliterating the law. You want to kill me. And then you have these two seemingly contradictory laws. Well, God says don't do any ordinary work on the Sabbath, but you can circumcise a male child on the Sabbath if the eighth day is, falls on the Sabbath. But the circumcision law predates the Mosaic law. That goes back to the patriarchs. And if you think it's okay to circumcise a child on the, seven, on the eighth day when it's on the Sabbath day, you can heal or cleanse part of a man on, on, on the Sabbath day. Why can't I heal the whole man on the Sabbath? Just the inconsistency of all of it. 
So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know that there is a, where, where this man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to lay hands on him, but they couldn't because God had his hand on him. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. All right, let's stop there for now. Let's look at the talk of the town. Notice the confusion and the controversy just in these verses that we read, the, the confusion and the controversy. We have three groups of people that John points out. One, we have the Jews. And in the Gospel of John, the Jews usually refers to the religious leadership, the religious establishment, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious leadership of the day. That's usually who John is talking about when he talks about the Jews. Then we have the Jerusalemites in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? These are people who live in Jerusalem. We could call these inside the beltway Jews. <laughs> these are folks who live inside the beltway. They live in the capital. And they're going to be more attuned to the political climate of Jerusalem, more in tune with the tone and tenor of the religious establishment. They know that the Jews, the religious leaders, want to kill Jesus. They're the inside, inside the beltway Jews. And then we have the crowds. Like in verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds. So the crowds, that's just the populace. And that would include all these visitors coming in town for the Feast of Booths. So you've got Jews from Judah in the south. We have Galilean Jews from the north, like Jesus and his family. And then we have Jews that are from out of town. I mean, they're from out of the countryside. They're the dispersion Jews, folks who have traveled from great distances. Those are the crowds. And within these different groups, these different demographics, if you will, there's all kinds of confusion and controversy. Listen to some of the reactions we have just in chapter 7. There's grumbling in the crowds in verse 12. There's that grumbling. We talked about that last week, kind of under your breath, grumble, grumble, grumble. Some were grumbling. He's a good man. Others, no, he's not a good man. He's a false teacher. He's leading people astray. So grumbling in the crowds. And then we also have astonishment in verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? He hadn't been to school. He, he hadn't been to seminary. He's not classically trained. He's not rabbinically trained. How does he know so much? And they're astonished at his teaching. Matthew and Mark both tell us that, that the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes. You see, the, the, the scribes or the rabbis of the day, they would rely on the authority of other rabbis. So they would, they would always refer back to some other rabbi. Well, you know, rabbi so-and-so taught thus and such. We learn from rabbi thus and such, whatever. Kind of like a lawyer would speak today, how a lawyer would, would buttress his arguments with court precedent. Well, you know, in Smith versus Jones, the court decided, and so that's why we argue thus and such. Well, here, the, here, the scribes, the, the, the rabbis, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so taught. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus would just say, I tell you the truth. 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he, he just speaks with authority. Why? Because his authority comes from the Father. That's what we hear him say here in John chapter 7. And then not only is there astonishment, notice there's ridicule. Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy. You're, you love the law, but you want to kill me so much for the law. And then verse 20, the crowd answered him, you have a demon? <laughs> you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? There's this crowd, the out-of-towners. What? You're just paranoid. You're, you're crazy. Who wants to kill you? They don't know. And then there's confusion in verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites, they're saying, isn't this the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? I mean, here's conspiracy theories. You thought those were new. <laughs> here's a conspiracy theory. You know, folks who live inside the beltway, who live in Jerusalem, they know the religious leaders want to kill Jesus, and yet he's standing right here in the temple, and nobody's doing anything. Well, maybe, maybe they changed their mind. You think they know? Maybe they've decided. What do they know that we don't know? What are they not telling us? So there's confusion. And then there's misinformation, verse 27. However, uh, we know where this man's from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. There was a notion, an idea, it didn't come from the Bible, but there was a notion, an idea out there, that when the Messiah shows up, and when he starts doing his Messiah stuff, he'll just ride in out from nowhere. Nobody will know him, nobody will know where he came from. He'll just, he'll just ride in on a great white horse. You know, he, he'll be like Melchizedek with no origin and no background. He's just going to, whoop, there he is, the Messiah. Again, that doesn't come from the Bible, but it was a, a notion in the day. So these folks, they're misinformed. Well, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. Misinformation. And then there's hostility in verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Again, because the Father had his hand on him, but they're ready to seize him. And then there's belief in verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? You know, if he ain't the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, how can the Messiah do more than this guy does? Oh, he's got to be the Messiah. I mean, he's just got to be. And so that some are starting to believe. And there's different levels of believing. We've, we've already seen that. So look at all that confusion, all that controversy, all, all around Jesus Christ. The opinions are all over the map, aren't they? All over the map. Then I want you to see warning and invitation. Listen to what Jesus says. Let's pick up in verse 33. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I'm going to him who sent me. I'm just going to be here a little while longer. Now, you and I know, I mean, we peaked. We, we read the rest of the book. We know that six months from now, he'll be crucified. And after that, he'll be raised again. And after that, he'll ascend to the Father. So six, roughly six months from now, he won't be there anymore. He will ascend to the Father. That's what he's talking about. For a little while I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to go back to heaven, and you aren't coming. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you'll seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? There again, there's that theme of misunderstanding, which he did a lot in John. So they think he's talking about geography. He, where can he go that we can't find him? He's talking about going to heaven. He's talking about judgment day and eternity. And they're, they're stuck on you know, geography in, in this world. But notice that there's that warning. One day you're going to seek me. 
and you won't be able to find me. And where I am, you can't come. That's a warning. Now, Jesus says the opposite to his disciples in chapter 14. Where I'm going, oh, you know, and the way you know. And I'll come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, you may be also. I'm, you will be with me, and you know where I'm going. But for these folks, this is, this is a warning. We hear that same warning back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's an invitation. Seek the Lord. Call upon the Lord. But there's also an implied warning. You better seek him while you can because there's coming a day when you won't be able to find him. You better call upon him while he is near because there's coming a day he won't be near. You better seek him and call him while you can. There is a warning. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. It wasn't Jesus who was in danger, but those who wanted to arrest him. They're the ones who are in danger. And then we have an invitation in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, there's a context here that really makes that pop. In the Feast of Booths, remember this week-long camping trip. In the Feast of Booths, every morning at dawn, the high priest would, would lead a procession from the temple. He would go into the temple, take a golden pitcher. And the priest would lead this procession from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, to the, to, the, to the Gihon Spring. And he would fill that pitcher, that golden pitcher, with water there at the pool of Siloam. And then he would lead that procession back up to the temple. Meanwhile, a choir is chanting Isaiah 12.3, which says, You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. When he gets back up into the temple, he would hold up the pitcher. And then the crowd would say, higher, higher. And he'd raise it up higher. Higher, higher. He'd raise it up higher. Higher, higher. And then he'd raise it up as high as he could. And then he'd pour out that water in the temple. They would do that every day at dawn for six days. And then on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. On the seventh day, the last day of the feast. Now, there was an eighth day added. Later on, it's kind of a to cap off the whole week, but the seventh day was the last great day of the feast. Now, that water ritual, that wasn't prescribed in the Old Testament. That was just kind of added and, and evolved as time went on. But it commemorated, again, Feast of Booths, Exodus, the wilderness wanderings. It commemorated God's provision in the wilderness. God gave them water from a rock. So as we remember God's presence and God's provision, God's protection in the Exodus. Here's a remembrance. God gave us water from a rock. It also anticipates the blessings of the Messianic kingdom as prophesied in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. And then it's also a symbolic prayer for rain. Remember, this is fall. Fall is the dry time of year. It's, it's practically a drought. And by this time of year, the springs are starting to run low. The cisterns are beginning to dry out. And so it's, in essence, a, a prayer for rain as well, that God would restart that whole agricultural cycle. We need the winter rains. We need the spring rains to start the new agricultural year. So all that is in that water ritual every day of the festival. And on the last day, they do that seven times. And on that day, Jesus stands up and he says, what? If anyone is thirsty, 
in the middle of a, of a water ritual. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Kind of like John 4 all over again, isn't it? What he told the woman at the well, John 4, we heard it again last time in the, in the Bread of Life discourse. But it's in that context, that water ritual. If you're thirsty, come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And you'll have rivers of living water that come through, come, come through him. And, going, and of course, you know, he's talking about eternal life, the river of life, life in him, life in his spirit. Well, let's keep going. Now we have division and decision. Look in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Listen to those divided opinions. Again, division and decision. All those opinions about Jesus. He's the prophet. And you remember we talked about that eschatological prophet. They're expecting a prophet associated with the Messiah, either before the Messiah, with the Messiah, if he's not the Messiah. Oh, he's the prophet. Deuteronomy 18. Oh, no, he's not the prophet. He's, he's the Messiah himself. He's got to be the Messiah. And then someone else says, he can't be the Messiah. Oh, we know from the Bible the Messiah is going to come from the house of David. He's going to come from Bethlehem. He's from Galilee. <laughs> so they're right, but they're wrong. <laughs> Jesus, we know, is from the house of David. He is from Bethlehem. He is the Messiah. And then notice in verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd. There's a division. Again, polarizing, controversial, divisive. In Luke 12, Jesus said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. R. Kent Hughes said this, Christ did not want to bring division, but because of the sinfulness of our hearts, because of our fallenness, because of our unwillingness to repent and bow to him, the Prince of Peace is Christ the Divider. There arose a division because of him. He's polarizing. Now, if you go back to verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. These officers are Levites. These are religiously trained people in, in the establishment, if you will, and they are, they're the security force for the temple. They maintain order in the temple and its environs. So they send these officers, again, religiously trained people, not just hired muscle, but they are religiously trained people. So they send these officers, these Levitical officers, to go arrest Jesus. Now watch what happens in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? So they come back empty-handed. You know, we sent you to arrest him. Where is he? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. You know, in other words, what's wrong with you people? He's not the Messiah unless we say he's the Messiah. We don't believe in him. And what's wrong with you? Are you just as dumb and as uneducated as the audience? Remember, these are religiously trained people. They're educated. Are you just as ignorant as the crowds in that intimidation, that ridicule? But the, the officers come back. No, one's, no one speaks. No one's ever spoken like this guy does. Now, notice they don't blame the crowd. 
We hear that a lot in the Gospels. Well, we would have moved against him, but man, the people will love him, and it would have turned into something. If we tried to arrest him, we would have had a right. It's not that. No one. We've never heard anything like this. <laughs> Someone said they went to arrest Jesus, but they were arrested by Jesus. They're astonished. They are mesmerized by his teaching. And then, of course, the religious leaders, they ridicule them, try to intimidate them. And then Nicodemus in verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, remember we met him in chapter 3, he said to them, he's one of the Pharisees, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So here's Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, and he's, he's just trying to bring a little little reason to this thing. Hey, we, we've got rules. We've got a process. And our law says, you know, you've you got to hear a man out. You need to give him a fair trial. Give him a, a hearing. And then they turn on Nicodemus. Are you just a Galilean hillbilly too? Are you uneducated as well? Don't you, you know? And they, so they try to shut him down, intimidate him, and mock him and ridicule him. Sound familiar? <laughs> more things change, more things stay the same. And then they say, you go back and read your Bible. Don't you know that no prophet ever came from Galilee? Well, they're wrong. <laughs> Actually, Jonah was from Galilee. Some scholars would say that Nahum and Elijah also come from Galilee, depending on where you draw the lines. But they answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search it out and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Wow. Polarizing. You either love him or hate him. You're for him or against him. Divisive, controversial. That was true in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7. And you know it's still true today. Jesus is polarizing. You're either with him or against him. You either love him or hate him. You're either a disciple or you're not. You're either saved or you're lost. And the question is, where are you? Where are you with Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you serve him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. Again, listen to this invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's that invitation, and it's still open. If anyone, anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. But there's that warning. You better come while you can, because it can become too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Paul writes in, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 6, Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews says twice, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Today, 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 if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Have you been saved? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If not, today's the day and now's the time. Don't say no, don't say not yet, don't say one day, because one day may never come. One day may be too late. Today's the day, and now's the time. Say yes to Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus, prepare to take a stand. He's polarizing. He is divisive. He is controversial. <laughs> and if you stand with Jesus, you're going to be standing against the crowd, and the crowd's going to stand against you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John chapter 7. God, we thank you that as we read this passage, we, it's like watching the news in our own day and time. Some things never change. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and the identity of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. 
I pray for the one who's never been saved and help them to see and to hear and to know that they need Jesus Christ, that they are lost without hope, without God in the world. Bring them to the cross even today. Lord, I pray that we as your followers would be willing to take a stand, that we're willing to be divided and polarized, that we stand with Jesus Christ. Seal this message to our hearts. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.